Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the... Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Yes, hello everyone in podcast land here on the Neil Garfield Show. This October 28, 2021. And it's always good to be here discussing the foreclosure matters of the day. Today's topic, tracks in the sand, how to exploit the compliance stocks lenders send out. So as almost all homeowners who've had rounds of foreclosures will know, be they in one now, be they in one previously, where they're still dealing with the implications of that. Maybe they've won some rounds against their purported lender. Uh, I know a number of listeners have gotten some traction, gotten some results over the years, uh, in part, frankly, through listening to this show. Uh, But as always, We're not imparting legal advice here. We're simply a topical discussion forum. That's what the Neil Garfield Show is. We talk about legal matters, not from a legal advice point of view, but from an informational point of view, a media information point of view. The purpose here is to give some information, some perspective, on topical foreclosure issues, matters, and then the listeners themselves can follow up and create some traction out of of what they uh, learn about on this show, potentially. So that's the goal, and that's what we do here. When we say tracks in the sand, we're saying that because in reality – the compliance format that these lenders have to go through. And, of course, they typically go through their servicers to do that. As, again, listeners will know, the foreclosure process typically consists of a so-called purported lender, uh, some entity that, supposedly owns the note to their property. And as everybody in the foreclosure arena knows, such a large uh, portion of foreclosures, even now out there, are these alphabet soup trusts, are the, uh, the trust with eight or nine or ten even separate words in them, 
and often starting with uh, U.S. Bank, Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank. Those are three of the big players in the securitized trust world. And frankly, it's astonishing that the, the literally tens of millions of loans still securitized that way. Here, going uh, toward, not there yet, certainly, but toward 15 years after the mortgage meltdown of 2008. So the tracks in the sand are the evidence left. Sometimes it's a lack of evidence. Uh, Legally, there can be implications from either the presence of a fact or the absence of a fact. That is true in in any kind of uh, litigation-laden arena. That is almost all areas of law where there are statutes are subject to litigation. And that litigation, when it drills down to get the facts that matter in a specific case, be it a foreclosure case, be it another type of contract dispute, sometimes we're even talking about a family law dispute. Regardless, uh, the absence of certain details and facts or their presence related to a specific statute can have huge impact on where any litigation related to that statute is going to go. So in the case of foreclosure, simply by complying with the statutes that uh, the lenders have to comply with, and, you know, as I say, most cases, borrowers, homeowners will know this, most of the time, they will be getting their um, loan serviced by a separate servicer, and the nominal trust holder is there in the background. So the vast majority of their communications, not, not necessarily all, but the vast majority, will typically be with the servicer. So that servicer, if they want to take a property to sale in an unjudicial foreclosure state, And, of course, they're going to be alleging that there's a default of the debt. They're going to be alleging that these so-called borrowers, so many months behind, so many thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands, because the situation has gone on for years. When they put all of that in writing and when they make their demand, of course, even the non-judicial foreclosure statutes, such as that, those that exist in California and other non-judicial foreclosure states, which kind of back of the envelope, except for Hawaii, most of the Ninth Circuit states are largely judicial foreclosure. So we're talking Arizona. Uh, I meant to say non-judicial foreclosures of the Ninth Circuit states. Uh, where I practice, for instance, are typically um, non-judicial foreclosure mainly. I mean, it should be said when we say that a a state is either judicial or non-judicial foreclosure, uh, there are certainly states where there is a real legal requirement, such as Massachusetts or New York or even Florida, to take the vast majority of defaulted properties to an actual judicial foreclosure, meaning there has to be a judicial foreclosure lawsuit where the plaintiff, lender, slash servicer 
will put a demand on the uh, supposed borrower and then take him or her to court, they don't pay up when the demand is put on them. On the other hand, in non-judicial foreclosure states like California, and again, this, this whole panoply of states out west, Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, to name some, there are judicial foreclosures, uh, particularly in Washington and Oregon, though, again, the great majority of, of foreclosures happen non-judicially. But the principle there is that judicial foreclosures, you will see them sometimes in a non-judicial foreclosure state because the non-judicial foreclosure route is simply a, an alternative to taking the judicial foreclosure lawsuit. Um, it won't surprise listeners to know, whatever side of all these issues you are on, that it's more expensive to bring a judicial foreclosure case. It's much more legal intensive. It's much more detail intensive. Now, one way in a non-judicial state, of course, that uh, supposed borrowers can try to change that dynamic is to sue as a plaintiff against the party that's trying to non-judicially foreclose. So, notwithstanding Ivanova, notwithstanding even Chiarata, which is frankly still a case where one can cite elements to show that it kind of gives a, a, an opening to bring a non-judicial foreclosure lawsuit, even if the property has not gone to But certainly when there's an actual recorded notice of default, that's a legal declaration that you are subject to having your property sold. Now, in California, as again, listeners will know, that means that your property can't be sold for, you know, approximately four months. Um, Nevertheless, that's a very real time frame. And at the end of three months, after the recording of the notice of default, a notice of trustee sale can be recorded. And then that notice of trustee sale can't be for a period of less than three weeks before the recording. But nevertheless, you know, that time will go through in, 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 in any number of cases. So from a legal point of view, you know, notwithstanding the vagaries, notwithstanding the fine distinctions of certain case law like Ivanova and Sharada, nevertheless, uh, you're on the legal hook once that notice of default is filed. Now, if a notice of default is not filed and you actually bring a non-judicial foreclosure lawsuit, let's say you bring a uh, a kind of um, non-monetary declaration case where you're insisting that the rights of the parties be established and you get declaratory relief around those rights. The purpose there, of course, would be to show that purported foreclosure, well, in this case, they're not purported. Let's say they've actually done a notice of default, which means at that point you are in foreclosure. You bring a lawsuit against that party, they're a real party in interest. 
and uh, their interests may or may not be bogus. Their, 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 their interests may or may not be legitimate, but they are a real party in interest for suit purposes. So the idea that, oh, that's a preemptive lawsuit if you sue them, um, that's not really the law in California. And again, I'm not parsing every distinction here. I'm not giving legal advice. I'm simply stating kind of basic you know, legal ideas and how they flesh out in the real world and in the legal world. And a real preemptive lawsuit is when you don't have a notice of default and you sue anyway for declaratory relief, again, to establish that this party wouldn't even have standing if they were to bring a lawsuit against you. Now, that is going to be considered a preemptive lawsuit, I think, in any court in California. It doesn't mean that the sewer should be sanctioned. It doesn't mean that that case is, uh, let's say, presumptively dismissible. Let's just say it's going to have problems. Though. It's, it's not going to likely get a legitimate airing in the California court, federal or state. Though, again, once the notice of default is filed, that's a whole different matter. And see, before the notice of default is filed, we're, again, talking about any non-judicial foreclosure state, the timelines are different to some extent from state to state, but the principle is all the same. And non-judicially, the uh, – and by the way, for those of you on the East Coast and the Midwest and the South where there are a lot of judicial foreclosure states, really what I'm talking about is applicable to your situation too. Because in all those cases – and again, this is where the tracks in the sand are created – In all those cases, the servicer on behalf of the so-called trust holder, and sometimes the servicer is the so-called trust holder. Nevertheless, it's almost always the servicer who's dunning you with these letters, harassing you with these letters. And these letters say you owe money. And they say, you know, you owe X amount of money. And sometimes the way that those numbers were derived is is almost a kind of fiction. Uh, Sometimes it's a big finesse. Um, oftentimes it's challengeable with some kind of cause of action related to requiring accounting. And this is kind of an aside, but not really. You would think that asking for an accounting case where you're demanded to make a money payment would kind of be a routine thing and kind of be a standard cause of action. In places like California, asking for an accounting as a cause of action will often get the defensive response that, well, that's not a cause of action, that's strictly a remedy, uh, when actually there's statutory law related to getting into accounting. So, uh, I mean, those kinds of distinctions are, are beyond the scope of the show today. Nevertheless, it, it's kind of important to keep in mind that when you put together your pleadings, you, you're always going to have to parse that more detail. And the biggest thing you can do up front is you use a qualified written request, you use a debt validation letter, and or. Uh, and the third thing you can do, which very much shores up your position, again, whether you're being sued or suing over a foreclosure matter, the other big thing you can do is retain and get uh, an investigator, somebody who does forensic uh, analysis of these Byzantine securitized loan documents, 
uh, Bill Padalo, who often joins me on this show, and we'll be back soon. Uh, he is an excellent choice for that type of analysis. There are literally a lot of others around the country in every state, both, both in judicial and non-judicial foreclosure states, that are available for that type of service. It's an important one. If you have either a qualified written request or a debt validation letter and you have a loan audit done, you will be in a position to really either at least have a fighting chance on the defense side if you're sued judicially more than a fighting chance on the non-judicial side if, you've, if you're facing a notice, notice of default and, you know, if you have a notice of trustee sale, usually your time is limited. That's all the more reason, though, to have these types of things in place. Uh, you can, of course, do the audit analysis well before there's an actual dunning letter put on you. Now, these dunning letters, whether they're done judicially or non-judicially, Typically, it's the lender saying, look, this is what you owe. And then you're virtually always going to have in any state a compliance period of 30 days. Sometimes it's more or less, but that's the typical time frame. You're going to have that time period to challenge the debt. You do that with, again, a qualified written request and or a debt validation letter. Meanwhile, if you're working up a loan audit, you can expose and expand on whatever deficiencies are there. If you have major problems in the chain of title, if it's clear that the purported holder, after so many assignments or sometimes even one or two, because of the specific provenance of the loan, if it's clear they can't, that they're really in control and that they uh, possess the note and that legally they have the right to foreclose, those are all attackable aspects of what's going on with the other side. The key to drilling down on that, of course, is details, is tracks in the sand. You need to take those tracks in the sand you get from the other side and their letters making certain demands of you, and you need to flip that because often they're going to expose aspects of their case against you that are lacking. And that you will know from both what they say in these letters and what they don't say. And in fact, uh, having the legal analysis of these types of letters and getting an attorney out in front of these or getting out just somebody who's analyzing them and uh, working with either a pro per or a pro se while they get an attorney. There are a lot of different ways that this can be handled. I mean, Neil is excellent at doing these analyses. And he's an excellent person to coordinate, so is Bill Padua. So you don't have to be an attorney to do the analysis. On the other hand, when it comes to the uh, dunning letters and the specific legal demands, I mean, in a perfect world, you want an attorney there because that's who you're going to have on the other side advancing your case. And depending on who's making the demand, which servicer, what their points of reference are, whether it's apparent or not that they have an attorney that they're working with at that time, usually you won't get any sign of that early on. You'll just see 
a demand from the service or him or herself, itself, I should say. So there are a lot of elements to that, and, and uh, there are a lot of attorneys who've handled a lot of issues with certain servicers, and the servicers may typically coordinate with certain attorney firms, and it can be an advantage. It's not necessarily an advantage, but it's often an advantage if your attorney, as you happen to connect with and retain, does uh, coordinate often with these, these opposition people. Uh, the more the merrier is the kind of uh, sounding of that situation typically. Not because those people would be in, in cahoots, though that ha- does happen. And one of the banes of this whole foreclosure area is finding an attorney who will actually be your advocate and not sell you out to the other side. Uh, that issue just raises my my aphorism of long-standing, as in law, so in life, as in life, so in law. We can't flip the script in these foreclosure cases. We can't pretend that the foibles of humanity and humans on the ground and in conversation and in legal representation do not have all kinds of failings. And so, yes, there are a lot of attorneys who hold them out sells out to do foreclosure who are really not advocates for their clients. Unfortunately, that's true in a lot of areas of law. I will say, I think to the credit of the foreclosure bar, if you want to call it that, that I think for the most part, the attorneys who have been in the area for years and are actually getting some traction in their cases, they are doing uh, God's work, I will even say. And they are uh, they are advocating for their clients typically. It doesn't mean that they can always get traction in every case. It doesn't mean that you know they'll be perfectly attentive in every case. There are a lot of things that happen to attorneys. I think listeners to this show know about that all too well. What has even happened to their own attorney? For those homeowners in the audience, so. Uh, the bottom line there is, yes, this is a time to get out ahead of, of all of the disappearance of the foreclosure and eviction moratoriums. And, uh, you know, to, to, to get perspective on another thing that I typically say at this point when I'm discussing these matters, it is important for you to drill down into the details. You, you're probably going to want to even check your local city or county, wherever you live, to find out what their latest COVID stuff is, you know, what the specific regulations are about this or that. You want to check your local courts, federal or state, to see what their so-called latest rules and regulations are. In the city, county, state level, it's often guidance that's talked about. You don't hear that as much in the federal realm. It's more a question of edicts regulations that have been promulgated based on, in some cases, the state framework they operate in. That's how typically California, the federal operation here, uh, tends to go. But, you know, even when California relaxed the number of requirements, everything like masks, the federal courts did not necessarily do that, and they followed the edicts um, or there is some guidance out of, you know, a certain federal department essentially gets promulgated into regs at the, at the court level, the federal court level. 
So, you know, the small message on that, but the important message on that is you always got to look local when you're trying to figure out what the COVID impact is. And of course that relates to uh, timeframes. And I'm finding with situations where you'd need to get a TRO in place and this type of thing, the rules are always somewhat convoluted and somewhat complicated, and they are becoming somewhat inconsistent. So whether you're going to need to appear remotely, how you appear remotely, are you going to have the same time frames and days available to get in front of a judge? You need to parse all that in, in advance because there are a lot of there are a lot of variables with that. And so I, I will say in terms of trends that the the move toward remote hearings is going to continue, especially in states like California. Now I have to admit Myself being in California here in San Diego, naturally my perspective of all this is somewhat clouded and tilted to that direction. I'd be curious to know what listeners are finding in states like Florida and Texas, where we often hear, at least we hear here in California, that things are essentially back to normal. There really aren't mandates. I'd be interested to know how open the courts are. Maybe that's something uh, Neil could address as far as Florida goes. When I say open, courts are pretty much universally open now. What I mean is the level of access, our hearings in person, uh, you know, how are filings done. Now, I think one thing we've, we've talked about a bit but not really touched on much is electronic filing. That's something that's coming to the pro-per and pro-se arena. So, again, I can only speak for California, but wherever you are, whether you're in a judicial foreclosure state or a non-judicial foreclosure state, if you find yourself without an attorney for whatever reason, if you find you can't get an attorney for whatever reason, then you should look into your local court. If you have a case there, either as a defendant or a plaintiff, be it federal or state, Particularly at the federal level, there is a movement in California to empower litigants to actually be able to file electronically. Of course, you have to go through some kind of kind of tutorial at the federal level to confirm you you have the basic understanding of, of how you file. You have to get credentials. You have to get a login. You have to get a password, Um, and it does take, you know, a fair amount of computer acumen. You certainly don't have to be a computer wizard. Uh, On the other hand, if uh, being on a keyboard with a screen in front of you is completely foreign to you, then you're going to have some navigating. Access a website to file a document. So at the state level, and again, I'll speak for California, the electronic filing options are still very much in their infancy, and I would not even say that it's it's a programmable option in a lot of counties. So I think the trend is moving that way, 
it's just a question of when it shows up. I will say that, you know, the 51, I believe, counties in California, I mean, even at this, this late date, there are some counties in California that have just come on board with uh, electronic filing. I mean, Alameda County, of all places, is now just enabling electronic filing for attorneys. And the interesting thing is, first they make it voluntary, then they make it compulsory. Gee, where did I hear that theme from? Well, that's a discussion not for this show. That's an off-topic political discussion. So, as always, great to present the information here on the Neil Garfield Show. And Neil will be back next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.